This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Lord, would you take this word? It looks like it's just English on a page, but it is your holy word. And would you take it and transform our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. On Wednesday this week, I went to visit my mother who uh, just had a knee replacement down in Dallas. And if you've ever had a knee replacement, you know what it's like to go through that kind of um, invasive, violent surgery. And leading up to the time when she had her knee replaced, there were, there were muscles in the back of her leg that she hadn't used in probably six years. And Wednesday, the third day after surgery, she came out of surgery and she's sitting there in the bed at Carroll Clinic in Dallas. And this, this woman who looked as sweet as can be called Emily came in and she said, hello, I'm going to be your physical therapist. And my mother thought she said physical terrorist, <laughs> which was probably more true because Emily made my mother start using these muscles that she hadn't used in six years. And she made her bend her leg in certain ways. And she, she was forced to exercise part of her body that she had not used, that had atrophied. And it hurt. And it was extremely painful. And it felt like there was a kind of violence that was going on under her kneecap as she learned to use these muscles again and again. The, the truth of what Paul tells us in this passage in Ephesians chapter 2 is that there are muscles in our Christian discipleship that have atrophied. We haven't used these muscles, some of us, for a very long time. You remember last week that we said that the purpose of the book of Ephesians was so that you would know the hope to which you've been called, the riches that you have in Christ, the power that is ours in Christ, and be aware of Christ's rule and reign in our hearts through his body. It's in this beautiful prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 through 23. And, and then from that prayer, he then gives us the two evidences in our life of whether or not you're really aware of the immeasurable power of his greatness that Paul mentions up in verse 19. And Paul says that these two evidences are first, that the dead are brought to life. That grace comes into the heart and it radically changes people personally. That's what he talks about in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. And then in Ephesians 11, 2, 11 through 22, then Paul says, but that's not it, folks. That's not it. And this actually may be the muscle that is atrophied in your life much more. We love, we love grace in the heart. Like, we, we love to have our emotional needs met. When people say that the gospel changes you personally, we're like, yes, we love that. But then Paul turns the knife on us a bit, and he says, okay, so if you're really walking in maturity in the Christian life, not only are your personal needs met, are you changed personally, but also your relationships are completely and radically changed. And they are changed in a community called a church. We love the very first evidence of Christ's immeasurable greatness, but we really don't like the second very much. 
modern Americans love the first. You know what I'm talking about. You hear this all the time in Owasso. I had, if I had a nickel for every person in Owasso who's told me that they are spiritual but not religious, we'd already be in a building. To say that you're spiritual but not religious is to say that I like God as I conceive of him, but I don't like God's people. And um, we said last week that, that if you understand the cross of Christ, then any two people, no matter how different they are, are able to get along. Any two people. And, and you may listen to this this morning and say, all right, so thank you, Pastor. I appreciate that very much. You're preaching to the choir. Like, we're here. Like, we set this place up. We're here on Sunday morning. We go to the YMCA for a new church plant. And you're preaching to the choir. But am I really? I mean, some of you still think the church is like a corporation. That you have personal ownership of the church. That you're a partner in the church. That you have a say in what happens. But hands off your personal assets. It's like, I'll be part of this church, but I'm not going to become part of a community group because I don't want people to really know who I am. Paul says that if you walk that way in the Christian life, you're going to be frustrated. Personal and communal transformation come together, and they come together in a place, a local body called the church. The principle we learned last week was that if you understand the cross, then any two people are able to get along, no matter if you homeschool or public school, no matter if you are Republican or you're Democrat, no matter if you are a mother that works or you're a mother that stays home, no matter if you find in that, that it's quite easy for you to come upon income for your family or you find that, man, you're punching the clock and it's so frustrating because you can't get a better job. Look, there are all kinds of divisions in Owasso, and as we grow as a town, those divisions will only become more apparent. Racial, economic, denominational, theological lines will potentially split us. But Paul says, if you understand the cross of Christ, then any two people are able to get along. And they're able to get along because the gifts that God has given you are gifts. And they're not to be used to look down your nose at other people. That is almost always the reason why we feel superior to other people. Because we take pride in the talents that God has given us. And last week we said that the antidote to pride in a young church, or in a big church, in any church, is that you boast in one thing only. And that is what Paul says in Galatians 6.14. Far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Boasting in the cross is the only way that you will understand that the cross levels the playing field. Because you know that you stand on level ground with everybody. Because we are broken and in need of grace as sinners. This week... We're going to learn a second principle. And I'm going to give you the principle, and I'm going to tell you three stories to illustrate it, and that's it. And we'll prepare for the supper. Here's the second principle. Well, b- before I do that, let me, let me mention this one quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer that I think is quite helpful. Bonhoeffer wrote in an amazing book called Life Together, probably the best book on Christian community that is out there that I know of. 
Bonhoeffer said that the more genuine and deeper our community becomes, the more everything else between us will recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. Look, some of us have deep hurts from the church. We have been scarred, we have been bruised from pastoral abuse, from people who have gossiped about us in the church. And I'm, I'm not making light of that at all. But what I'm saying in this church, we hold each other accountable in so much as we're able to by the power of the Holy Spirit as we come to know each other. To say the one thing that is vital between us is Jesus Christ and his work, is the gospel. Isn't that freeing? Like, like a number of months ago, I walked into church the day after the Cotton Bowl. And if you guys, um, I went to A&M, and Texas A&M is really not good for much around here except for some jokes, right? And, and uh, so I went, yeah, I see a Giggum sign. Thank you very much, John. I feel like I'm in, so I, I, we played, we went to the Cotton Bowl, and we played OU. And the first thing I thought was, oh, no, <laughs> Like, this is a lose-lose for me because I can't come to church on Sunday and talk about the game if we lose because I'm going to be so mad, but I can't talk about it if we win or people are going to think that I'm rubbing it in their face. So it's a total lose-lose. And so I walk in the day after the Cotton Bowl, which A&M won, and who do I see? But I see Chuck Simmons, and he is donning his crimson and cream but everywhere there's an OU logo on his outfit, his hat or his shirt, he had taken an A&M logo and taped it over it. And so he had like incarnated into my joy. And he came to me and he gave me a big hug and he said, that was a great game, brother. And I didn't even place a bet that he had to do it. And I should have if I'd known he would have done that. But Chuck helped love me. He embraced me, even though we were very different that morning. And it was a beautiful, do you know how freeing that is? Like, I don't say that to you as a pastor. I say that to you just as a member of the church. You know how freeing it is to have people rejoice in your victories with you, even though it came at their expense? It was so freeing. It was a beautiful picture of what Bonhoeffer talks about. All right, here's the second principle. The second principle is this. If you understand the cross, your past moral record only magnifies its power. If you understand the cross, your past moral record only magnifies the cross's power. Several times, Paul uses this phrase, far and near, in this passage. He says in... in, at verse uh, 13, for example, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then down in verse 19, he says, or 17 rather, And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. This is the only place in the New Testament where we hear of the language far and near. Because it's a hearkening back to the Old Testament where the Lord called people who were near to him, they were the Jews. And he said those that were far off were the Gentiles. And here, Paul is saying, if you're going to be the church, any two people, no matter how different, should be able to get along. And your past moral record, does, it only magnifies the beauty of the gospel. 
The Jews and Gentiles were fiercely at odds with each other. The Jews said of the Gentiles that they were fit only to be the kindling of hell. Think about that for a minute. That you would call another ethnicity fit only to be the kindling of the fires of hell. They hated Gentiles. And God gave the Jews this beautiful law, which we we kind of read now and think it's funny, but the reason he gave that law to them in the Old Testament was to set them apart and to be a magnetic pull of other nations to say, look at these funny laws they keep, but yet the Lord continues to make them successful year after year after year. And they were to be the magnetic pull of the nations, to pull them into Israel, to worship the one true God. But over time, the Jews used that very good law that God gave them as not a, a, a walking stick, as it were, but as a measuring stick. And they beat people over the head with it. And they said, if you don't live up to my moral standards or the standards of my people, then you're just, you're less than we are. And so the Jews grew incredibly proud. And Paul says to the Jewish community, O you who are near. And he says to the Gentiles, O you who are far, the gospel is for you. We saw it in the very uh, small verse in our reflection today in Isaiah chapter 33. Hear you who are far off what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. Story number one, a case study of somebody who was far off that was brought near to the gospel. There was a man who was probably the most, he is the most famous early church father. His name is St. Augustine. But he wasn't always famous and he wasn't always part of the church, but he was very early a father. Out of wedlock to a son, he named Adiodatus. Augustine grew up in um, modern-day Souk Algiers, North Africa. It was called Numidia back then. He was born in 354 to a man named Patricius and a woman whose name was Monica. His dad was not a believer and his mother was a deeply devout Christian. And his father believed that success is found through education. And so he procured a way for Augustine to have the highest education his entire life. He found a benefactor to pay for school for him, and he sent him off to Carthage to go to college and to become the best student in rhetoric or literature that there possibly could be in the 5th century, 4th and 5th century. But when he went off to school at Carthage, biographers know no other way to describe it except that he gave in to the vanities of this life. He was overcome by the world's luxuries. He was the best and brightest student in his class. He had a child out of wedlock. He lost himself in the world in Carthage. And his mother wept and prayed for her son week after week, year after year while he was away. And he knew that he would be able to be a more successful uh, professor if he left North Africa and went to Italy. So he went to Rome for a couple of years and his mother was so distraught by the fact that he was going to leave the country and go to Italy that she actually followed him to Italy and prayed for him. Didn't even let 
him know she went. And she would just be in his shadows praying that the Lord would bring him back to himself. He went from Rome to a place called Milan, teaching rhetoric, becoming very famous. And he heard a man named Ambrose preaching the gospel. And Ambrose preached the gospel in a way that utterly astonished Augustine. Ambrose could help use literature to help drive home the point that the gospel is not man's wisdom, that the gospel is utter foolishness. And Augustine found this incredibly appealing. And through the preaching of Ambrose, Augustine was cut to the heart, but he was facing this kind of existential dilemma. How can I possibly give up the luxurious life that I lead? How could I possibly turn my back on this woman with whom he had a child and had been by his side for all these years? How could he possibly turn away from drink and from sex and from everything that he defined himself by? And so he went off to a garden one day to pray. And he said, God, I don't know if you're there, but if you're the God of Ambrose, I'm interested. And he heard some children playing in the garden. And one of the children said, Tola lege, tola lege, which in Latin means take up and read. And he had a Bible with him and he opened the Bible and he opened to the first passage he came and he read this in Romans chapter 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And at age 31, in that garden in Milan, Augustine passed from death to life. He saw that he was broken, that he needed a savior, that the power and the popularity and the fame and the sex could never satisfy him. And he became a Christian. And after he became a Christian, he soon left his profession of rhetoric and he became a bishop and he went back to North Africa And he oversaw a church in a place called Hippo. And for many, many years, until he died in 430, the Lord used this brilliant man to be the primary defender of the church against heresy. And the point of me telling you the story is not to say that if you become a Christian, you must leave your profession and go to ministry. The point of me to tell you the story is that some of you are far off Some of you are not even thinking about the gospel at all. That you're still trying to make it happen through sex and money and fame and popularity and drinking too much and everything else. And the Lord is telling you, this gospel is for you. Those who are far off, it says in Ephesians 2, the Lord has come near. Later in Augustine's life, he wrote a a book that he just confessed his journey in, and he called it the Book of Confessions. And this is what he has to say. He says, in a spirit of thankfulness, 
Let me recall the mercies that you lavished on me. O my God, to you let me confess them. May I be flooded with love for you until my very bones cry out, Who is like you, O Lord? Let me offer you a sacrifice of praise, for you have snapped my bonds. How you broke them I will relate, so that all your worshipers who hear my tale will exclaim, Blessed be the Lord. Blessed in heaven and on earth, for great and wonderful is his name. Augustine reminds us that the Lord is true to his promise when he says in Isaiah 43, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone whom I created and formed for my glory. Are you far off this morning? The gospel is for you. Story number two. A story of someone who is near. Martin Luther was, um, how do I say it? He was the monkest monk to ever have monked. He was the most devout, religious Roman Catholic that the Roman Catholic system of sacraments could ever have produced in the 17th, the 16th, rather, 16th century. Luther said that if anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. He was born in 1483 in Saxony, Germany, to a copper miner named Hans, or John in English, and a mother whose name was Greta, or Margaret in English. He was disciplined extremely hard growing up. One time he, he stole um, a, a hazelnut, and his mother whipped him so bad that he bled. Luther said one time he was um, disciplined so badly at church, for some, or at school rather, for something that he never confessed to doing, that um, he had to be sent to the infirmary. Um, Luther lived a very, very hard life. He was sent away by his parents to be a lawyer, to bring honor and fame to his family because they were a poor copper mining family. And he went to a university called Erfurt in Germany. And when he was at Erfurt, he excelled in studies, much like Augustine did. And the faculty recognized very early that here is a man that has big-time potential. He's got a big-time brain. He's very buoyant. He's very gregarious and sarcastic in his humor. And people liked Martin a lot. They drew near to him. And uh, one day at Erfurt, he came across a Bible in the library. He had never seen one before, even though he went to church for most of his life. And uh, he read it. He was deeply stirred by the stories in the Old Testament, particularly of Hannah and Samuel and of Samuel's calling. Do you remember that? When Hamuel blessed her son and then Samuel was called by the Lord to be set apart for him. He was deeply stirred by that. He graduated from Erfurt. And just after he graduated, there was a, a student protest at the school and his best friend was killed. And Luther was horrified because he thought, what if I had died and not my friend? 
And this really challenged him in his faith. And then not long after that, he was carrying, um, I don't know why he had a sword, but he, was, he had a sword and he was coming home from school. Maybe it was something he had gotten at college, I don't know. And something happened, there was an accident and he cut his femoral artery with it. And his friends sutured him or, or bandaged him together, ran for help. And he did what every good 16th century Roman Catholic needed to do. He prayed to the Virgin Mary. And his friends saved his life. So he has this friend that dies and he almost cuts his leg off. And then he's traveling one day and he gets caught in this horrible thunderstorm. And this is the story that most of us remember about Martin Luther's conversion. And he's in this thunderstorm and lightning and thunder are cracking all around him. And he's terrified. And he cries out to the, 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 the saint in the Catholic Church of thunderstorms, Saint Anne. And he says, Anna, if you save me from the storm... I'll become a monk. And she saved him from the storm. And he became a monk. (laughs) He kept his promise. And he went to an Augustinian uh, monastery. And he gave his life to studying the Bible. He immersed himself in theology He tried to follow every dot and iota of Scripture. He was, as he said, the most faithful monk he could ever have imagined. And if anybody could have earned salvation, surely it was Martin Luther. Martin would go to confession to his confessor. His name was John Staupitz, Johann Staupitz, and he would walk up to the confession booth and he would pour out his sins. I, I saw a woman and I lusted after her. I, I thought about, you know, murdering my brother during prayer. He would just go out this litany of sins. And then after the confession booth was over and he was dripping with sweat, thinking he had just poured his soul out to his confessor, he'd walk away. And then he'd go back because he had another one. And he did this week after week, month after year after year in this monastery. And he grew that this Bible that was to be for him, the gates of paradise, it actually became his greatest tormentor because he fell utterly captive to the law of Scripture. And Luther writes in his own diaries that he, he said that he hated the word, the righteousness of God, because he had been taught according to the custom and the use of all of his teachers that it was God's, it was God, the righteous God, that punishes the unrighteous sinner. And so Luther, trying to be this incredibly religious person, like many of us try to be in Owasso, used the good gifts of God, the laws that are supposed to be a mirrors of our heart to point us that we cannot keep them on our own. And Luther used them to be the litmus test of salvation. And it almost drove him mad. Until one day he was reading Romans chapter 1. And verse 17. And it says, There I begin to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteousness lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning of the righteousness of God. Namely, the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. 
as it is written, he who, faith, he who through faith is righteous shall live. In other words, Luther saw that the words the righteousness of God didn't mean that the righteousness of God is a characteristic of God, although that's true. It's not that God judges you from his righteous position, all those who are unrighteous. Luther realized correctly that when it says the righteousness of God in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that it's the righteousness that God gives us. That we're passive recipients of his righteousness because we're not righteous and we desperately need it and we can never earn it, no matter how much like Mother Teresa you want to be. He goes on and he says, Here I felt that I was altogether born again. And I entered paradise through open gates. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred which, with which I before hated the word righteousness of God. And thus, that place in Paul was for me truly the gates of paradise. Luther was near. He had all the gifts of Scripture. He grew up in the church. But he used his morality to try to get God's approval. And what Paul is telling us in Ephesians chapter 2, and what I've tried to communicate through these different stories of Augustine and of Martin Luther, is that you can be a professional call girl or you can be a professional choir girl and both of you need the gospel because if you're trying to win your salvation by self-aggrandizement power popularity please recognize that even if you're at the top of the world you will ultimately not be satisfied our hearts Augustine said, are restless until they find rest in him, Christ our Lord. And those of us who grew up as people in the church and that we've tried to become good people and we think that the days, the weeks that we are better people, that God likes us more, you've got to repent of your good works. Because the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 7 that Christ holds a priesthood permanently because he continues forever in that role. And he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And in this passage on the church in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, do you want to really be the church in Owasso? Do you want to really walk together and to be God's new society? A place where two people who will never otherwise get along, get along. Because the cross levels the playing field. Do you want to get the cross? Then you have to understand and know and believe that your past moral record only magnifies the cross's power. It magnifies the cross's power because you see like Augustine that you could never earn your salvation no matter how famous you could possibly become. And you can never earn salvation no matter how good you could possibly dream of being. Only Christ is perfect. He's the only perfect person in this building right now. And he is here. 
And the twinge of conviction that you feel when you hear my voice and you hear the word, it is your Savior telling you, oh, come back to me. I love you. Please don't try to earn my favor. I am enough. Will you rest in me? Story number three. On Sunday last week, Laura Wellington was a half mile from the finish line in Boston. And she wrote a note this week on Facebook, and this is what it said. As some of you know, I was a half mile from the finish line when the explosion went off. I had no idea what was going on until I finally stopped and asked someone. And knowing that my family was waiting for me, I started to panic and I tried to call them. I I diverted away from the finish line and I started walking down Massachusetts Avenue towards Symphony Hall, still not knowing where my family was. And right before the intersection of Huntington, I was able to get in touch with Brian, one of our family members. And I found out that he was with my family and that they were safe. And I was just so happy to hear his voice that I sat down and started crying. And I couldn't hold back. And at that moment, a couple walked by and they stopped. And the woman took off the space tent uh, off of her husband who had just finished the marathon and she wrapped it around me and she asked if I was okay. And if I knew where my family was and I reassured her that I knew where they were and that I would be okay. And then the man looked at me and he asked me if I had finished to which I nodded no. And he proceeded to take off the medal from around his neck and he placed it around mine and he told me, you're a finisher in my eyes. I was barely able to choke back um, a thank you between my tears. Odds are I'll never see this couple again, but I'm reaching out with a slim chance that I will be able to express to them just what this gesture meant to me I was so in need of a familiar face at that point in time. And this couple reassured me that even through such a terrible thing, even though such a terrible thing had happened, everything was going to be okay. Paul says that he came to preach peace to those who are far off and preach peace to those who are near. For through him, verse 18, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Brothers and sisters, we didn't finish the race. And your Savior came to you. And he gave you the medal of victory. And he took off that space tent and he clothed you with his own righteousness. And he has provided for you access into the throne of heaven through his death on the cross. In Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace and find help in our time of need. Or Romans chapter 5. 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Do you know why some of you are far off and you're running? It's because you want access to something. You don't know what it is, but you want to be part of the inner ring, the inner circle. You want to have, you want to be in. You want to be in. You want to be with the people who feel like they have everything. And even when you get there, you won't feel like you have anything at all. Because Augustine shows us that even the powers of the world can't satisfy the longings of our heart. You find yourself in a neighborhood sometimes and you're looking in at people's homes that are beautiful that you can't afford. And you just wonder sometimes, what would it be like to have been raised in that family? To have dinner in that house. To live their life. And then as you're watching a house in this neighborhood, the man comes out the front door and he invites you in. And he says, come in and live in my house. Everything I have is yours. Friends, Christ Jesus did that for you. Except he didn't just come out of his house to draw near to you. He actually gave his life for you. So that you might be satisfied. Brothers, if you're far off, come back. Sisters, if you're near, cease your striving. And rest in your Savior's finished work who loves you. And in this way, we will be able to evidence the immeasurable power of the greatness of our triune God. And we, even as a young church plant, will grow into what God intends for his church. Let's pray. Father, thank you that our past moral record only magnifies the power of the cross. Thank you, Father, that those of us who have been running from you for years and who are running from you right now, Lord, would you help those of us who have stopped fighting against sin? Lord, would you help prick our hearts and remind us that it's okay to struggle. It's just not okay to quit struggling, to give up. Lord, help us to struggle well as you want us to struggle in community. We can't do it on our own. Would you help people that are at Trinity who are in community groups to get in them? Would you help community groups to not be like corporations where they just play the part, they have ownership, but there's no personal liability. Lord, help us to be vulnerable with each other. Teach us what it means to be the church, your new society. Oh, I beg of you. Teach me what it means to be one who, though near to you, even as a minister, desperately needs a fresh work of your Holy Spirit. So renew our hearts, we pray, as we prepare for the supper. In Jesus' name, amen.